This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to David Wheaton. He has a nationally syndicated radio talk show called The Christian Worldview. He's also written the best-selling book, University of Destruction. In addition to that, he's a former professional tennis player. I ranked in the top 12 in the world at one time and played at Wimbledon. David was at Nebraska Christian recently and spoke to our students, and we'll be joining David with the chapel message. Let's go to that message right now. I was listening to a radio show about, oh, a number of years ago, and they were talking about high school and college. And one of the hosts on the show said, that life's most important decisions are made between the ages of 15 and 23. Life's most important decisions are made between the ages of 15 and 23. And when I heard that, I thought, really? 15 and 23? I mean, what about like buying a house and where you end up in your career? Aren't those really important decisions that, you know, 15 and 20, that's your high school and college years. As I begin to think about what that man said in the radio show, I begin to realize that, you know, how well you choose to do in high school, the grades you, you get, and how well you do on your tests, how much you apply yourselves, in some way, that decision will determine where you go to college. And that decision on where you go to college could determine what you choose to major in in college. And what you choose to major in could determine what your first job is going to be. And what you do in college regarding who you meet could end up being your spouse, your husband or wife someday, and how seriously you take your faith and whether you're going to decide to be morally pure. These are huge decisions. And as I began to consider what this man said, I said, actually, I think that is actually correct, that life's most important decisions are made between the ages of 15 and 23. Very interesting that those years are your high school and college years. Why are these years, the most important decision years of your life, because it's a big transition. You're transitioning from boy to man and girl to woman. You're going from dependence to independence. You're going from your parental values to forming your own personal values. So your decisions in high school and college start you down a track that form you and then really don't change too much generally speaking, after the age of 25. And that is why high school and college is an incredibly important time for students to set the right course for your life. Who here can tell me the three most important questions in life that everyone should consider? Where do we come from? There's number one. Number two is who am I or why am I here? Anyone know number three? That's right. Where are we going after we die? This is the life's three big questions. If I asked you the middle question today, why are you here, what would you say? Would you say, I'm here to you know, have fun and play sports and, and travel and make a lot of money and buy a big house someday? Or perhaps you'd say, I'm here to get an education and get a job and get married and have kids. But you know that every successful company and organization has a very clearly defined mission statement. The mission of Nebraska Christian Schools is to assist the family and church by providing a Christ-centered education, equipping students with a biblical worldview, and encouraging a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's right there on the wall. But the question is, 
why don't we as individuals have clearly defined mission statements? Now, I was reading some time ago an article about students who engage in alcohol and drugs on and college campuses, and in one of the comments underneath the article, a college student wrote in and said this, I am a college student myself, and I do see these tendencies, drug and alcohol abuse, but this is the only four or five years of your life where you get to go out and do whatever you want. It is very hard to imagine getting up every day early in the morning for a small paycheck, going home and doing the exact same thing the next day. After college, there's nothing left to look forward to. If this is how life is going to be, college students have the right to go out and drink. Everyone I have spoken to has said to me, do not graduate in four years. It will be the biggest mistake you have ever made. The real world, S-U-C-K-S. This is the last time to go out and have fun before we get real jobs that suck the life out of many people. If I'm going to be looking at a computer screen in a cubicle for the rest of my life, I should be able to have four or five years of fun before my life becomes pointless and boring. Do you think this college student has a whole lot of purpose, has a real good mission statement in life? I would say not, but I don't think that's necessarily the exception for many students who go off to college. I think that's kind of the rule for a lot of them, unfortunately. So what should the mission of a Christian be? Obviously, it's not this. What should the mission of a Christian be? Well, I think there's a few verses in Scripture that gives us a hint at what the mission for a Christian high school and college student should be. And it's laid out in these three verses. The first one's from Romans, for whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what, that, what is that verse saying? It's saying God wants Christians to become like his son. Okay, verse 2. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So be like Christ. And what was Christ like? Verse 3, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What word do you see being repeated in these particular passages? The word overcome repeats again and again. In other words, be like Christ, Christ says we can overcome the world, and then to him who overcomes, that's exactly what the mission for a Christian should be. You'll see this verse used over and over in Scripture. If you ever read about the seven churches in Revelation, at the conclusion of every church, it's to him who overcomes. So I would define an overcomer as a genuine Christian who seeks to impact others for Jesus Christ while overcoming the tests, the trials, and the temptations of life with the supernatural resources God provides, which are the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and prayer to God. Now, an overcomer is a, is a victorious Christian. Not someone who's perfect or sinless, but it's someone who generally wins the game of life rather than the fence-sitting Christian who is a professing Christian, yes, but who often compromises when he or she faces the tests, the trials, and the temptations of life. And by the way, the, a career is irrelevant to be an overcomer, whether you're a pro athlete or a lawyer or a wife or a mother or an accountant or an engineer or a construction worker or an interior designer or a programmer. An overcomer doesn't necessarily mean you need to go on to the mission field over in Africa. It means that whatever you do in life, you are a victorious Christian. It means that you influence those around you for Jesus Christ while you are overcoming 
the three big battlefronts in life. We all felt this. There's an outside pull on us. It's called the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So all of us here, including me, we have this pull on us from the outside, from the world, what we see on television, the movies, and the media. It's pulling us to go away from God's way. But if that's not enough, there's an inside pull that comes from within us. That's nothing to do with the world. We could be alone in a cave somewhere, and there's something inside of us called the flesh that pulls us to go the wrong way. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So we have this outside pull. We have this inside pull, and there's one more pull. Where does that pull come from? The world, the flesh, and the, the devil, the source of the pull, a real literal being who wants to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a soaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That is the source of these pulls, of the world and the flesh. So as an overcomer thinks about what he's up against, he thinks about what would be a good mission. And there's a good passage in Scripture that I think gives you a framework for developing your own mission statement as an overcomer. It comes from Titus 3, 5, and 6. For the grace of God that brings salvation, that's Jesus Christ, he's the grace of God that brings salvation, he's appeared to all men. And what does he teach us? That we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And that we should look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a peculiar people or zealous people, uh, zealous for good works. That's a great mission statement. But to summarize that, for a student, I would say my mission in high school and college to take that verse and kind of make it a little more plain is to honor God by living a life of integrity, to impact my peers for Jesus Christ, and to do as well as possible in school. So my challenge to you as you end this school year, get near the end of it, is to start thinking for yourself what a personal mission statement for you could be. It doesn't have to be exactly this, but it doesn't have to be exactly that. But think about what your mission in life you want it to be and have it in a sentence or maybe even two. That will put it on your wall. And so you know what drives you, reminds you what should drive you in life. Now let's get back to that book. As many as 50% of Christian students will say they have lost their faith after four years in college. Now, when people hear this, they often think, well, how is that actually the case? Well, they broke it down, this study, the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA did a survey of students, thousands of incoming freshman students, and it was a whole survey, and they asked all sorts of questions about all sorts of things, but one of the questions they asked was a simple question, do you consider yourself a born-again Christian? Okay, so all the freshmen checked the box, yes or no. And then these students were resurveyed four years later and asked the very same questions. Do you consider yourself a born-again Christian four years later? So this is a self-profession survey, so it's actually quite accurate. Now, depending on the type of college they went to, 
here's what they said. So if they went to a public university like the University of Nebraska or the University of Minnesota, 27% of the students who said, yes, I am a born-again Christian coming in would say, no, I am not a lo no longer a born-again Christian. So 25% of them about would say they, quote, lost their faith. They went to a, a private college university, like maybe an Ivy League college or a, more of an elite private school. A full 45% of those students will say, no, I am no longer a born-again Christian after being in college for four years. I went to a Catholic college, it's 59%. Now we can maybe debate that because Catholics don't often consider themselves a born-again Christian, which begs the question, why do they consider themselves a born-again Christian when they came to college? That's for another day. 31% of, now this is the interesting one, 31% of students who go to Christian colleges, Protestant colleges, will say, they have lost their faith, or they're no longer a born-again Christian after being there for four years. Don't you think it's a little interesting that it's actually higher at Protestant colleges than it is at public universities? I'm going to tell the seniors why that is in the next couple of sessions. And if you go to a CCCU, that's the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, these are colleges that where the students have to make a statement of faith coming in, sort of the teachers. These are really intentionally Christian colleges. The lowest percentage of students will say they've lost their faith after being in college for four years. So the question is, why is this? Why do so many professing Christian students, when they go off to college, go in as a professing born-again Christian, and then four years later just say, you know what, I don't believe any of that anymore? Well, I think there's two reasons for this. And the first reason is this. It's a traumatic transition going to college. Let's face it. It's one of the most difficult transitions we're ever going to face in life. You know, these students go off to college, they're unprepared, and then they get demoralized after being overcome by what I call in the book the three pillars of peril. Sexual immorality, drugs and alcohol, and humanism, which is a non-Christian worldview. So they face these three things on the college campus and then after four years, their worldview's been so changed, and they've been involved in these kind of things, they're like, you know what, I, I really just can't even consider myself to be a born-again Christian anymore, so they check no on that box. But I think there's a second reason as well why so many students will say they have lost their faith after four years in college, and it's in terms of a riddle. All possessors are professors, but not all professors are possessors. In other words, just because you profess to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, just because you profess to be a born-again Christian, doesn't actually mean you possess a saving faith. Now, you might think, whoa, this guy's really judgmental. How does he go around judging people's hearts? He doesn't know my heart or anyone else's heart. Well, it says in Scripture, Matthew 7 and other places, Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus said, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will profess or will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I know about this because when I was growing up, I was a professing Christian but not a possessing Christian. You know, I grew up in a really good Christian family, maybe like some of you, good Christian parents. Parents took me to church. 
raised me reading the Bible in the home and so forth. And when I was young, I, I made a profession of faith when I was about five years old. And I, I started out playing hockey when I was just two, being from Minnesota. And you'll see my hands are apart here on the hockey stick. And then you'll see when I started to play tennis a couple years later, my hands were still apart on the tennis racket. And so as I got older and started to play high school tennis in ninth grade, I won the state high school tournament as a ninth grader, still a professing Christian at this time. And then I went down to the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy down in Bradenton, Florida. This was, went there halfway through my 10th grade year. And these were some really good players there. There's Martin Blackman. We played together at Stanford. He was in the Pro Tour. Andre Agassi and Nick Balateri, the coach, and then Jim Courier. These two guys were number one players in the world. This is when we were about 16 or 17 years old. And in case you didn't recognize me, this is me over here. That's right before I got in the weight program. And, uh, you know, no one ever accused me of using steroids. Uh, so I was a professing Christian. And then I went in my teenage years as I faced the different things of the peer group of being in this junior tennis world, I went to being a digressing professing Christian. And as I went off to college at Stanford, I was doing well in tennis. We won the national title while, while there and had an excellent team. That's when, I had my, that's when I had hair and it was bleach blonde in college. And then I went on the professional tour when I was 19 years old. I was a professing Christian through this time, but during this time, my life was characterized by wrong choices and the wrong kinds of dating relationships and having an attitude of dishonoring to my parents. Basically, I wanted to be my own authority and not have anyone else tell me what to do. And I thought back to what I was thinking during that particular time in my life. And I, I remembered I used to rationalize. I used to think, well, I am a Christian. I am generally nice to people and I do good things. I can just confess my sin to God and God understands that no one's perfect. Or I compared myself to other people, which is never a good thing to do. I'd see my peers on the tennis tour traveling with their girlfriends, and I'd think, well, you know, I would never do something like that. I'm not as bad as that person. Or I resisted God. I just didn't want to give up on my sin, because sin is pleasurable for a season. I thought the Christian life was kind of boring. It was keeping me from having fun. You know, you only live once was the thought I had. But the reality was... Those three big battlefronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they were defeating me, and I could really do very little about it. It was like me playing basketball against LeBron James. Now, I can play one-on-one -on -one against him all day, and no matter what I do, he's going to win, and he's going to win badly. And that's exactly what I was facing when I faced the world, the flesh, and the devil. Did I, want, did I love God and want to obey him more than myself? Was I interested in reading his word? Did I want to be with other Christians? Was I un under anyone else's authority? Was I morally pure in my thoughts and actions? Was I forgiving towards others? Was I content with what I had? And if I'm honest, the answer to all those questions was no. And a verse of scripture spoke to me from Galatians 5 when it said, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery and fornication, and all these lists of sins. As you skip down, it says, And the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also tell you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I looked at that list and I thought, well, I, I haven't committed all those sins, but certainly some of them. But that word practice spoke to me because I knew very well what practice meant. I was a tennis player. I knew that practicing meant something that you habitually do day after day. That's the characterization of your life. And I read a quote by John MacArthur, the great pastor from California, who said, although believers undoubtedly can commit those sins in that list, 
those people whose basic character is summed up in the uninterrupted and unrepentant practice of them cannot belong to God. And so I knew that was me in my early 20s, that I was practicing a lot of these sins over and over, and I realized that I didn't belong to God. And what changed? I played a tournament over in Munich, Germany, called the Grand Slam Cup when I was 22 years old. And I qualified for this tournament by finishing in the top 16 of that year's four Grand Slam tournaments. Now, who knows what the four Grand Slam tournaments are in tennis? Australian, French, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. So that year, I had gotten to the semifinals of Wimbledon, and so I qualified for this year-ending event at the Grand Slam Cup in Munich. I went there, and I was just excited to be there, 22 years old, big, huge tournament. I win my first couple matches. I beat the Wimbledon champion in the semifinals that year, and I'm in the final of the Grand Slam Cup, like the biggest match of my tennis career. I'm playing my nemesis. You can see him here in the picture there shaking hands with the umpire, and I didn't get much sleep the night before, and I thought, man, I'm in a lot of trouble for tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to be rested. I'd had a long match the day before. And I go out against Michael Chang, and surprisingly, I play like the match of my life. I beat him in straight sets, like fairly handily, and I, I win the Grand Slam Cup. And here's the moment of victory, pumping my fists over at the player's box. There's my pe- family and some friends are over there, and I'm all excited. It's won the Grand Slam Cup, the biggest win of my career. You know, a lot of money, a lot of fame, worldwide television. I mean, this is, this is it. Ten minutes after the fist pump here, I have my hands sort of in the same position because now I'm holding the trophy. And I'm looking out at this row of photographers on the tennis court. And I look above their heads, like I'm looking above your heads. I just happen to look up in the stands, and there were 14,000 people there that day in the Olympic Hall where they played the Olympics in Munich, Germany, back in 1972. Packed. I look up above their heads, and 10 minutes after winning the match, everyone in the stands is basically gone. I'm thinking, well, wait a second, where did everyone go? I mean, I just, this is the biggest moment in my career. I, you saw all the pictures. Here I was, a, a junior player in high school, and down to the tennis academy, and off to college, and the minor leagues, and all this. And I get to the semifinals of Wimbledon, and now I'm in the Grand Slam Cup, and I win it, and it's over. Where did everyone go? I mean, where is the victory lap here? Why is it over so quickly? So I walk off the court, and I walk back to the locker room thinking, you know, what is going to motivate me? <laughs> for the next small tournament somewhere where there's not so much fame and fortune and success on the line. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that what motivates me? What is my mission in life? And a few months after that big win, I was on the cover of a magazine in Minnesota called the Minnesota Monthly. And it says, David Wheaton, a smashing success. But there I am in the picture, standing behind a racket like this, as if I'm trying to hide and the expression on my face is like, whoa, I, don't, I may have won the Grand Slam Cup, but I certainly don't feel very happy about it. I mean, I don't look very happy, do I? Broken strings, kind of metaphorical for the broken relationships with other people and with God at that particular time in my life. I was outwardly successful, as the magazine says, but inwardly, I was very conflicted because I knew I was not going the right way in life. I had been raised a certain way. I had been taught the word of God, as many of you have been taught the word of God, and had gone my own way, and I had an inward conflict. Two years after this big win, God continued to work on my heart, and a big turnaround happened. I stayed home from the Australian Open, and I began to read the word of God for the first time. Imagine that. I'm a professing Christian. I really never carefully read the word of God. I began to get an accurate understanding of 
who God is. You know, I always thought God was some kind of just there to kind of get in the way of the fun I wanted to have. Like he was some sort of cosmic killjoy. But the Bible said that God created me specifically so I could know him and I could experience joy and fulfillment for following him. And that was like, that was good news for me. But I also realized that God is a righteous judge who is patient, yes, and willing to forgive, but not forever. And as I read this verse in Acts, it said, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. And I started getting an understanding that God is my creator. He is my sustainer. He will be a just judge of me someday. Which brought me to the second better understanding about myself. I always thought of my goodness as, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a good Christian boy. And I'm not a real, too much of a sinner, as I mentioned earlier. But the Bible said just the opposite. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'd realize that I created a conflict with my creator by practicing sin. I'd separated myself from him, and I was in serious need of reconciliation with my creator. At this point, I was a little worried. But then came point three, the good news. The good news was that there is one God, Paul said this, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I started to get this better understanding of who Jesus was. He was this mediator. What does a mediator do? What's another word for a mediator? A intercessor or lawyer, right? Someone who advocates. When you go before the judge, you have someone there advocating for you. That's what Jesus is. He's the mediator between sinful man and holy God. And then it came down to there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And point four is, for God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as I read these incredible truth claims about Jesus Christ, I began to realize that God graciously sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay a debt he didn't owe because I had a debt, a sin debt, that I couldn't pay. And this was good news. So I had a more accurate understanding of God, of myself, of who Jesus was, and it really came down to what was my response going to be. Now, the human tendency when we hear this gospel is, well, I'm going to try to get right with God by being a better person and going to church more and becoming more religious and giving to charity and helping other people. But God says... Your good deeds, David, can never pay off your debt to sin. And the wages of sin is death. So you can either pay the eternal death penalty yourself, or here's the better option. My son Jesus Christ can pay it for you through his substitutionary death on the cross, which will fully satisfy my wrath and justice for sin. And I will also credit you his righteousness as if you lived his perfect life yourself. That's summed up in this verse that says, For God made Christ. One of the most powerful verses in Scripture encapsulates the gospel. For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for me and you, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when I heard this, it was like, I mean, Jesus Christ pays for my sin and I get his righteousness? This is an immeasurably valuable offer from God. The most amazing 
gift of kindness and grace ever that condemned sinners have a way to be right with a holy God. But as we all know, a gift must either be received or can be rejected. And that's why Jesus said simply, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin, repent, forsake it, believe in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. And when I did that, when I was 24 years old, when I stayed home from the Australian Open that year, my life changed immediately. And it was by grace that I was saved through faith. And it was not of myself. It was a gift of God, not a result of my works, that I would never be able to boast about it. You've been listening to a message by David Wheaton at our chapel service at Nebraska Christian Schools. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.